Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 63 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. It is Thursday, October 27th, 2022. I'm pretty sure it's the 27th. Yes. Um, it, it is Thursday, October uh, 27th, 2022. It is, uh, actually was snowing earlier in Denver today um, and pretty cloudy and winter is upon us uh, now in Colorado. It's snow in the mountains where my folks are at. Um, but I have a very special treat for you today. This is sort of uh, along the lines of our midterm prep that we've been doing in the last several podcasts and um, have a great exclusive. Um, you've, you actually saw Andrew Haney with Nickel Road on the podcast this past week uh, because he was uh, a get on the panel, the Koga panel that I was on, and that was the podcast. Um, but we have him here today live with us. This is um, the you're the president and CEO of Nickel Road Operating. This is Andrew Haney. I'll let him correct that title if that's incorrect. Uh, welcome to the um, podcast. Co-president. We'll go with that. How about that? Perfect. That's excellent. Okay. Very nice. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Yes, it's wonderful to be here. This is fantastic. I'm a Petro nerd to the core. I promise you. I, uh, my wife and I are both in the industry. We go out to dinner with friends and our friends usually start to roll their eyes when they feel us uh, pulling them into the oil and gas uh, conversation vortex. So um, I'll be able to uh, hopefully match wits with you today. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Well, my boyfriend and I, my boyfriend's also in the industry, so we we know what that's like uh, plenty and spend a lot of time talking geopolitics a lot. So, um, I you know, I always say there's a lot going on in the world. I wouldn't say this is sort of a, a soft news time, but we are in the midst of sort of earnings season. Um, we are coming on the back of the, you know, the Chinese um, Party Congress uh, finished last week. Lots happened um, within China. Not a whole ton on the news lately. There was a little bit last weekend with that. Um, that's sort of fresh and, you know, going on. The, the the Obviously, the Russian war in Ukraine is still percolating. It's still going. There's more uh, rumblings about uh, concerns about nuclear threats um, and, and false flags within Ukraine. Um, but on the backdrop of this is obviously, you know, that's all going on. There's super serious stuff, but everybody's pretty well focused on, you know, the U.S. stock market, oil prices and midterms. And um, I just heard, you know, was listening to Bloomberg and CNBC this morning, and it seems very clear that, you know, the White House is taking a different turn and tack on on the economy um, because they hadn't really addressed the economy and they're in this midterm stuff. And clearly that's a, an issue. So now they're saying that the economy is good and they're bragging about all the things that they've done on the economy. And uh, Biden came out this morning and said the GDP print for the U.S. was up uh, for up 2.6 percent. We had two negative quarters of GDP growth and now we're up. Now, everyone has said that underlying the underlying data and I haven't had a chance to look up, but the underlying data is not good. And we sort of all know that because we've seen the inflation read um, and everything that's been happening over the past few weeks. Um, but that being said, and, you know, something I've spent the last few podcasts really talking about is, you know, Biden's uh SPR or Strategic Petroleum Reserve release um, and his sort of his response to the OPEC plus um, cut of, of oil has been a really big deal. And there's sort of been a desperation, I think, by the administration to really get oil prices down. They weren't able to lift sanctions on Venezuela. They weren't able to lift sanctions on Iran. We have serious protests going in Iran with with um, serious casualties, lots of issues going on there. So that's just not that's not even on the table for a number of reasons. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was sort of the only thing that they, I think they could do really tangibly. And the problem is we have actually seen oil prices move to the upside. And 
And um, that I thought it's a little bit comical because the GDP print actually helped that today. Um, so GDP is up. And so people are, are saying, hey, look at oil prices up. And we had record exports, uh, record crude oil exports last week. We saw north of 5 million barrels a day. So huge record crude oil exports. Um, but just to timestamp this, and and it will you can jump in on on all the happenings in, in the global oil market. Um, eighty eight eighty five for WTI right now. Um, ninety set ninety six seventy eight for Brent. We're seeing um, Henry Hub has recovered from those four handles, but we're still seeing a five nineteen. Um, and we've seen Dutch TTF same for natural gas globally has really really come off. I mean, we had a hundred dollars for Dutch TTF. Per dollars per MMBTU in August, and now we're seeing a 30 but 3078 right now. Um, the 30 year mortgage rate is though staying north of seven percent. And if you and I were to get a mortgage today, Andrew, I'm pretty sure that would be uh, we would see something more like eight percent, if not higher. And the 10 year yield is hanging around this 3.9395. So we're hanging around sort of four percent on the 10 year yield, which correlates to the seven percent firm for mortgage rate. So a lot of pain in housing. And as you know, I've talked with you at length about um, you know, housing data and how that correlates. So serious stuff on that front. But super exciting outside of, you know, oil prices just going up. Super exciting is the International Energy Agency. And this is the midst of earnings season. So we've seen, you know, Shell, uh, we heard that Shell hasn't been paying back the or paying the UK windfall tax profits, um, which I think is interesting because they say that they're so they the the. Bloomberg article says, quote, Shell hasn't been paying UK windfall tax as profits double. Um, and that's they say it's because they've been investing. Um, you have other companies that are actually paying it. You have Total Energy saying that they are taking a bigger write off than they expected in Russia. That's because they were one of the laggards to sort of really pull out of Russia. Um, and I think it's also comical in, in some ways. But um, you have The Guardian talking about Germany, um, calling out Germany to, quote, stop dismantling German wind farm to expand coal mines, say authorities. Um, um, because they are expanding. I guess they're tearing down a wind farm to actually expand coal-fired power generation. And the reason we've seen gas prices really tumble is because the Europe is saying, hey, we are full on gas. So we filled up our storage really well. Now they did that with Russian gas and US LNG, but they're filled with that. And we've had a uh, unseasonably sort of warmer fall um, leading into winter. And so that's been very, you know, that's been you know negative on, you know, positive for, for, for the economy and everything, but negative on prices. And then the International Energy Agency came out and um, with their big report, you know, I don't even know if it's worth spending a podcast talking about it because it's um, it's just so ludicrous anymore. It's ridiculous. But in sort of their scenarios, you know, they they have the the basically the scenario in which we would just continue on with the current trajectory. Obviously, they have their net zero scenario, but with their continued trajectory as of 2030, they uh, they presume that we will be their net zero scenario at, at 2030. We will only be consuming 75 million barrels per day of crude oil. So 25 um, 25 million barrels a day, less than now. That's a 25% decline in the net zero scenario. So by 2030, that's a massive drop. It's impossible. It's not going to happen, but I'd love, we will talk about your inputs on that. Um, in their sort of current outlook, if we were just to take the scenarios in place now or the policies that they say are in place, which I don't actually think most will come to fruition, um, but they say that by 2030, we'll only have 93 million barrels a day of demand, which is still a big cut from 100 million barrels a day to 93 million barrels a day by demand. By 2030, that's still a massive cut. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think it's really important. And this is what the last thing I'll say before I'd love to get your reaction on all this is, um, mm -hmm. you know, they they basically have come out and, and this was on CNBC this morning as well. They're calling this the first global energy crisis. Um, I think it's interesting to call this the first ever global energy crisis, but they say 
quote that it is simple. Um, they say, for example, there's a mistaken idea that this is somehow a clean energy crisis. Um, this is simply not true. The world is struggling with too little clean energy, not too much. Faster clean energy transitions would have helped to moderate the impact of this crisis, and they represent the best way out of it. When people misleadingly blame climate and clean energy for today's crisis, what they are doing, whether they mean it or not, is shifting attention away from the real cause, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you know what? It just seems to me that the IEA has become, they've become a, a much more political entity because you can't, uh, you, they should have an objective and unbiased approach to this, that it's it's not, you know, it clean energy or renewable energy was a factor in leading in last fall and in leading into this um, and is just not reliable. And it's not just clean energy's fault for sure, but it's not oil and gas's fault either. And certainly it is partly the invasion of Ukraine, but it seems it's a multifold crisis. And most of us in the academic business seem to understand that. So without that, and sorry for talking too much, Andrew, love to get your thoughts and feedback. No, on that. Oh, this is great. I, thanks for setting the stage. I think there's enough going on in the world to keep us busy. And that's why that's why we have you, Trisha, to keep us up to date on all of those things. Because if I tried to spend all of my day thinking about all those things, I probably would, wouldn't get any sleep. So, and it is wonderful <laughs> to be here. Thank you for asking me on. Um, I love to be able to contribute to these conversations. And you've had some great uh, folks on on the podcast here recently, DRW and Gabby and Lou and Diana. And so it's been a lot of fun to uh, hear their thoughts on all the things that are happening. And it's great to add to that conversation. So. Thank you for uh, having me. Um, in terms of the macro, um, yeah, it's 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 very uh, troubling, and I think those of us in our industry that pick up the newspaper every morning, we try to figure out what can we do to help. Um, yeah, expecting oil production or oil demand to go down and do something that's never done before is not just unprecedented; it's unlikely. Um, and so w w that will probably continue. You'll continue to see people try to. Uh, you know, back farther into their corner until they're left with no other options. But the reality is, is I think at the end of the day, consumers and investors are going to, they're going to pivot a lot faster than policy pivots. And so, and a lot faster than politicians pivot. So uh, we'll see how that works. Um, I've got some information and data that I wanted to share on that front, uh, maybe later in the podcast. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, our corner of the world out here in Colorado, uh, we're doing what we can to try and get production volumes up. Obviously, um, Colorado's in a very unique situation, right? I mean, um, I went to New York City recently a couple of weeks ago with my family, and we saw Hamilton on Broadway, which is obviously a great show. And but uh, as I watched it, I couldn't help but think of one of the phrases in the in the show, which is uh, "History has its eyes on you." And when I think of that, I think of Colorado oil and gas development right now. Um, history does have its eyes on us. Right now, we have people in D.C. that are talking the talk, and uh, Colorado oil and gas operators are walking the walk. Uh, we're basically showing that we can do things at high standards. Um, we just wish, obviously, that we could uh, bring more dollars here and, and get the activity levels up. Um, and maybe, just maybe, uh, those green molecules will be welcomed. Yeah. So, I mean, I think those are excellent points. And I, I mean, and this is the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast. So one is because you're a, you know, you're a private operator, you're a private operator in Colorado. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a, it, it's a little easier in some ways being a private operator because you can talk a little more freely about stuff. Um, and I think the, the perspective of being Colorado, I'm not sure. And I've said this on the podcast a lot, but I'm not sure everyone, you know, listeners really appreciate, I mean, we sort of, 
you know, say words like Prop 112 and, and you know, folks may or may, if you're not in Colorado, you may not know what that is. Um, you know, I spend a little, I spend more time in the Marcellus now with clients. And I have to say, I do think there's, uh, there's likenesses and, and similarities and analogies that can be drawn to, you know, pencil to the Marcellus and to Colorado and sort of, you know, the Marcellus, you can't get a pipeline built out and you really need to. And it's got great rock and everyone knows we, we have all this, uh, you know, uh, we have all this LNG that can come under the market in natural gas and Colorado has all this oil. Um, but you, you have to be able to drill it. Um, and I think the, the single biggest thing in Colorado, and, you know, we talked about it on that panel we did at, with the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, but the, you have to be able to get a permit. And um, Colorado does have exceptionally high standards for for emissions um, and has had it for years, even prior to all the, you know, change in regulatory environment and the change in Jared Poles coming into office. I've talked about it with uh, with Heidi Gill, who was, um, has been on the podcast previously. Um, but it's a different environment to operate in Colorado. And I would just love to get, you know... W- the state of Colorado, and we've seen production decline. Obviously, a lot of that was sort of led by COVID, but it was sort of happening with, you know, Jared Polls coming into office, SB 181, which, you know, was sort of pushed through. And we've seen, we've seen, we lost nearly 200,000 barrels a day of production in Colorado, or in the DJ Basin, largely in Colorado, largely from Weld County, which is a really significant drop. And I, I, I think that's really important to just, in the grand scheme of things of, you know, 200,000 barrels a day is nothing to scoff at. Um, and you guys are on, obviously on the flip side of that is that you're drilling and producing crude oil and and adding to that. Um, but I would love to just get your perspective on obviously being a private operator, being in Colorado, um, the day-to-day of getting permits, right? The ability you're, you're applying for this, this, the regulations have ramped up, you know, what is it like? Um, and sort of explaining it for someone who's, you know, folks who know this, but folks who don't, I think your perspective would be fantastic to hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the only constant when it comes to permitting in Colorado is change. <laughs> Um, and for all the reasons that you mentioned with Prop 112 and then also obviously what rolled through with uh, 181, um, it's taken the commission a long time to kind of get their arms around it and the objectives and the enforcement of it um, and write the, writing those rules and implementing those rules. It's taken industry time to get its bearings. Um, we talked a little bit on that COGA panel that you put on your website, which was a whole lot of fun and I thought a great conversation for folks. Um, you know, we talked a lot about uh, all the contrast and things that uh, come into play when you look at Colorado because it's not every acre is not equal in terms of its ability to get permitted. Uh, but with all that being said, things are changing pretty quickly. So when we spoke on that Koga panel in August, you know, we were still like in this, you know, just starting to see some movement and permits, but uh, things have really changed. I mean, things have gotten better. I hate to say, uh, you know, that, you know, this is all, you know, I think that there's more improvement coming, uh, but we have seen some movement. And so I'm going to, show how nerdy I really am. If you'll allow me here, I'm going to show a graph. Um, and, and what this is going to show is it's going to show what's happening in Weld County right now in terms of permits. So if you go back and you look at, let's go all the way back. Let's go back to when we uh, implemented 181. That was in January of 2021. Obviously, there was pretty much a desert on permit approvals at the beginning there. And then when you get to um, like June 18th of 2022, so we're talking about moving uh, 17 months in, we were at 12 approved oil and gas development plans and 79 approved permits. And where we are right now is we're at 23 approved OGPs, 221 approved permits, and 441 uh, OGDP locations. So when you look at this, I'm going to throw this up there on the screen just real quick for people to see. It's a hockey stick, you know? And Mm -hmm. so you started to see here in the last three months 
the amount of OGDPs coming up and the amount of permits coming up. And the reason it's important is because we need sustainability. So you need a, a, enough permits coming out at a rate fast enough to keep up with activity. And we'd love for it to obviously outstrip activity so that there can be more growth. Um, the key thing is looking at that permit approval rate. And so what I've done on in looking at here is, is try to say what would be the slope, you know, that we would have to accomplish. And this most recent run up in permit approvals is still not where it needs to be, but it's getting a lot closer. And so you're so talking about maybe here in the last three months with the deluge of permits that we've seen come through, and maybe we're starting to get close to the rate that it would take to be sustainable here. So if you're just for folks who are, can't see this, see this uh, chart, which Andrew has, has put up another reason to watch what, you know, look at YouTube for this. But um, if you're if for folks who can't see that and we're thinking about 14, 15 rigs we've had hanging in in the DJ, that does include the Wyoming side, which we have a few rigs there. Um, so, you know, largely most of those are in Colorado. You've got PDC, you've got you. We have several operators, big operators. You know, we have um, Occidental and Chevron, obviously drilling. And we have, we have PDC with a few rigs, I believe, um, in the, drilling here in the DJ. Um, so that rate, I mean, that's not a ton of rigs. That's off, you know, well off its, you know, pre-COVID highs. Um, but we're declining even before then, given given the state of the regulatory environment. So with the amount of rigs that we have now, um, and you guys are obviously have been drilling and, and are now, you know, you know, working to, to fracking complete wells, where that, that rate that you're showing and that, uh, where are we at? How many, how many permits are we proving on a, you know, that has inclined? I know we're, we're seeing a step up and before, because we weren't seeing any permit approvals. And I think for the, for the listener who, who's not completely aware of what's going in Colorado, we just weren't seeing a permit approvals. And the problem is, is yeah. that everybody was, we saw massive consolidation in the space where companies were buying up companies and, and gobbling up. And we saw, you know, forced consolidation, but also, um, you know, actual consult, you know, companies purchasing other companies. And a lot of it was because they just, they were buying up these permits. Some of these were, you know, drilled, but uncompleted wells. I think that they were not just ducks that they were purchasing, but sort of a, you know, where they're purchasing the well that's already got the conductor pipe set on it. And, you know, some of the vertical already done, there was some of that going on. So right now, from your perspective, I mean, you're seeing these add up, but what are we seeing? Are we, we're, we're seeing a continual adding of permit approvals each month. So we're seeing these stack up or these sort of getting drilled. As we go. Yeah, no, great question. So, so that rate, if you will, just to give you kind of a sense of what kind of inventory we have right now, we have 913 permits uh, in the DJ Basin right now. And so to your point, we have actually 15 rigs in Weld County, 16 in the, in the Colorado side of the DJ Basin. So at 50 wells a clip, you can knock down about 800 wells in a year. With uh, so, so one permit year, if you will, is about 800 locations. So we have just over uh, a year's worth. We have 1.1 permit years, if you will. And so that's the key metric to keep an eye on, because what I think is going to happen is the dynamic in the basin is going to be very much controlled by whether we're uh, improving that or if it's coming down. Um, just until recently, it was coming down. And then here in the most recent time, last month or two, with some of these approvals that we've seen come through with new OGDPs and Form twos, we're actually starting to see it approach sustainability. So in my mind, all of this consolidation that you've seen in the DJ uh, over the last couple of years with these rules as they've rolled out is, is companies saying, hey, we want to give ourselves enough fairway to uh, continue right. to develop here because the returns are great. We talked about that on the panel. Yep. Uh, so I think if, if the permit rate continues to languish or goes back lower to where it is, then uh, what's needed to stay sustainable, then we're going to continue to see market consolidation between operators. But the hope would be that we would see that continue to, on that trajectory and improve. And if it continues to improve, 
and it has improved in the last three months, but if it continues to con- to get even higher than where we need it to be and we can expand the permit years in the basin, then that's a really good thing. I think what that'll do is that can potentially bring in new investment and have additional activity uh, in the basin, which is what we all want. And I think eventually what can bring, uh, you know, hopefully new players into the basin. But, you know, it's taken some time. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, we, we're saying the dust is settling. We're not saying that, you know, there isn't a lot of challenge that remains. Um, certainly, it's going to be difficult to see new entrants into the basin in the near term. Uh, but if we can get this right and work on this and get this rate of permit approval up, then um, down the road, it's it's there there are better days uh, for hopefully new investors to come into the basin. Yeah, no, and that's a and and that's extremely positive. I don't know if we had quite the positive you know spin. At least I did I, I, quite the positive spin on that on that Koga panel mainly because I think the emphasis and I was really pushing the emphasis of the desperate need to sort of ap- approve these permits and to you know I think I, I'm happy to always you know admit one when when things are shifting in the right direction that's exceptionally positive. So if Colorado's shifting and, and is able to sort of get these permits up, I think you're there's some huge benefits. The the thing that you talked about of you know when we've we talked about on the panel, I've talked about it with Heidi Gill on the podcast is, you know, we know the rock really well. You guys know the rock. There's a reason you're in the DJ um, is because it is, it's, it's not too deep. It's, it's great rock. It's consistent. There's repeatability. I mean, you don't hear a ton about the DJ in, um, you know, in Oxys and Chevron's, you know, in their earnings calls, but you do hear about it and you do, I mean, they are talking to it and obviously PDC, they're a public company. So they're talking about the DJ and they, they have some Permian, but I mean, it's, it's a, the repeatability is there. Um, I mean, these are not, thousand barrel a day wells, but they're not also, you know, hundred barrel a day wells and they're very, the consistency, you know, when I was going through the decline curve and normalizing it, the decline curves have, I mean, it's not at the all time highs as it was, but this is, we're right in line with sort of 2020, 2021, um, the, as, as far as what we're seeing now. So it hasn't, when you're normalizing that decline curve, we're seeing over 11,000, we're on average around 11,000 feet, if I'm correct for average lateral length. Um, in the DJ yep. as well. So, I mean, longer laterals, consistent performance. I mean, things are not, this is a, this is looking pretty good. And um, we have plenty because we've had, we've lost about 200,000 barrels a day of production. We have, we do have plenty of takeaway capacity. I believe we had plenty of takeaway capacity even prior to losing that. We do have a lot of gas. I mean, if I'm correct, it's about three BCF a day. It's a few BCF days that we're of associated gas that we're producing. Some of these wells tend to be more gassy, but obviously gas prices are great. Um, so, I mean, all those are the positives, right? Then that, that you see that the same as well. Those are how you sort of interpreting this as your business is that you sort of have the runway and the, you know, the biggest holdup is just getting the permits and then drilling it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of elements here, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're growing production. We're, we're having success. Uh, we talked about on the panel, how capitally efficient the DJ is, you know, drilling two mile laterals and getting your money back within nine to 17 months is, is very attractive for investors. And so the big, the big problem has been the pace of getting permits and, and the fact that, um, you know, we don't have the same level of rig activity that we've had, but we've continued to have breakthroughs here with technology. We've continued to drive down the number of days it takes to drill well and, and to your point, we're getting to longer lateral lengths now, two to three miles. Um, so there's a lot of things to be positive about from you know the subsurface perspective. And then obviously from the surface perspective, that's where the risk has been for people. And that's why we have a very robust non-op investment uh, market in the DJ right now. You know, we talked about, you know, if you have permit and you have a rig and you have some steel, then you know, investors want to be there. Uh, but they find the operating side of it very difficult. And, and I will say the operating side is is got obviously to meet those really high standards. And so it's not for the faint of heart, but um, it can be done. We're doing it. And there's a lot of other private operators are doing a great job too. So, um, 
you know, but it's not all good news. So there's a lot of what you said in the macro that's, you know, we want to be doing more uh, in Colorado. And, you know, how soon can we expect to be doing more? It's going to take some time. You know, I just wanted to show a ray of light so that, uh, you know, you know, things have improved in terms of the pace of those permits coming out. And that's where hopefully some of these conversations, uh, you know, the when we talked on the panel, I know some of our regulators were in the audience. And and I had the pleasure of uh, actually running into Julie Murphy and Jeff Robbins uh, just recently. I was at this Energy and Environment Leadership Symposium that Heidi Gill invited me to up at Northern Colorado. And thanks to her, a big shout out to her for all that she does for the industry uh, and advocating, and then also for inviting me to this great event. She she was one of the people that put that together, but it was really nice to get everybody under one roof and to talk uh, across the board. I know sometimes we find ourselves in um, you know echo chambers and things like that, pitted uh, at odds with each other, but I think a lot of times you get people in the same room and we start to see things from each other's perspectives and it can be a, a benefit. So it was a good talk. Um, and, you know, I talked to Julie and Jeff afterward. They're very impressive people. Um, you know, they were kind of thrust into the middle of this situation, obviously. We're trying to uh, have this huge uh, task of trying to write all these rules to be protective uh, in the eyes of the public and having to uh, absorb those rules and staff to get all that accomplished and then be able to roll these things out and then get the pace of permitting back up. So, you know, um, you know, they felt that they're, they're seeing rays of light in terms of, you know, being able to meet the public's expectations. Uh, Jeff pointed out to me that he said, uh, you know, um, his last hearing that he went to, there was one person signed up for public comment, you know, and, and we all know what those hearings were like when SB 181 rolled out, right? So, you know, from their perspective, they, they hope that they're doing right uh, by people's expectations of these new standards. And then from the operator's perspective, uh, you know, we want to see that pace come up, but it's coming up. You know, and so, you know, uh, it's not a two sides at all in this in this story and in the situation. You know, uh, the regulators, I think they are starting to settle in and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see that pace continue to improve. So uh, from that perspective, positive news, a lot of work left to do, though. Yeah, no, I mean, those are, uh, you know, great, great color um, and feedback sort of on that. I think I would, there's a, there's a couple things I want, different tracks I want to take this. Um, one is that I, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, from the operational side of the fact that Colorado is not yet, be, because there's a, you know, 14, 15 rigs that are hanging in there. And again, that um, let's call it, you know, 10 rigs on average, we're hanging 10 to 11 rigs in Colorado. Obviously that's not the highest that we had. So in this environment with a $90 oil price environment and, you know, seeing a hundred this year, Colorado is competing. And I've, I've said this, you know, on that panel, but I've said this elsewhere. I mean, our production has been declining. We see 1.6 million barrels a day of production in New Mexico from two counties alone um, because of this, you know, the Great Rock in, in a Delaware Basin. That's on federal land, you know, and it's still it's competing because Colorado has just has lagged behind. And this puts, you know, and this is the whole industry in, in general. But I mean, the Rockies have, have been in a tricky spot with, you know, North Dakota, with Wyoming and Colorado. I mean, it's not just Colorado. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of double hit with the regulatory side. But I mean, the Rockies in general have not seen the activity come back um, since since pre-COVID, since 2019, because of the, you know, the massive pushes on, on ESG, the huge investor pressure, you know, push to deliver returns. Everybody's fo- focused on, you know, delivering growth in the Permian. You can even break up a company like EOG and look at EOG resources and you can look at their production and, and everybody says, oh, these public companies aren't growing production. Well, you should look at where they're not growing production, where they're growing production. Because if you were just to look at their Permian, if you're just to look at their Delaware assets, they are off the chart you know, in growing that production, but they've sort of let everything 
everything flatline. And the point of this is that, you know, these basins have to compete, right? You have to compete with activity. And that has consequences just for business in general of getting frack fleets, of getting rigs, of getting people, of get crews and equipment. Um, and that can create different uniqueness in the, in obviously we've had, you know, serious issues in the inflationary environment over the course of this year. But even prior to that, as, as, as inflation has ramped up across the world and, you know, across very different um, supply chains, but particularly in oil and gas, we've definitely seen inflation across various supply chains and getting, whether it's pipe, whether it's chemicals, um, and then people as in every industry as well, in and outside of oil and gas of getting people in the field. Um, and also, so that's, you know, people on your rig, um, getting the rig, frat crews. So I'd love to, you know, spend a moment just uh, on that operational side and that competitive side of, you know, operating in the DJ from an inflationary perspective, from getting, you know, the right people in the, in the rigs and everything. Obviously, I know your answer is going to be, hey, we're doing it. And you are. Obviously, you're drilling, completing wells. But love to know some insights. I mean, listeners love to hear about, you know, what is it like? Um, because public companies aren't as, as quite as forthright. And not, of course, for good reason, not going to spend 20 minutes in our earnings call talking about how bad the inflationary environment is. But I think it's really important for people to appreciate, especially, you know, it's why Colorado needs to do a better job of competing is because it isn't just a, hey, we're lagging a little bit of permits, but we also have to deal with the, the actual oil and gas business in the sector. Um, so I'd love to get your sort of thoughts and feedback on, you know, what is it like right now in the DJ? What has it been like over the course of, you know, 2022 operationally from, you know, the technical side, but getting people in the field, inflation, you know, you name it, have at it. Yeah, you know, there's so much to consider, right? I mean, when we got out of the pandemic uh, or just kind of on the heels of it, you know, uh, you did have concerns, right? Because you started, you saw activity levels come way down in the DJ, and there's other places like the Permian that were, you know, able to bounce back really quickly and had a lot of activity, and you know, n- none of the perceived surface risk issues that uh, the DJ has. And you know, the, but the reality is that we did, um, you know, we have seen inflation in the DJ as well as activity has come back, and so uh, it, it is a tough circumstance. But the nice thing is, as price has obviously reacted to what's happening. And from a macro perspective, um, there's been more willingness from investors to put more dollars back in the ground. And so we have seen the activity levels come up. I think probably the thing that feels even uh, probably the best is just the security of the vendors, right? I, I know Heidi talked a lot about how vendors had been through just a really tough stretch and, and nationally, but also in Colorado specifically. And so, you know, we start to see the health of the vendors improving, uh, that's where you start to say, okay, it feels like we've got uh, a solid foundation here. And so it's nice to see the vendors uh, getting uh, enough to fill their schedules and, and hopefully that will continue to increase activity as well. Uh, so from an operation standpoint, it's tough. You know, we, The nice thing about our position as a private operator is we're not going to drill um, you know, a continuous rig program. So we, we have the luxury of kind of sliding in between the big guys, you know, trying to find those little gaps in the schedule. And it's been enough to, to get us to to slide into those schedules uh, to keep our activity going. But um, it is tough. It's tough to manage. I mean, just on this last, you know, round of wells that we did from the previous, you've seen a 40% increase on some of the costs. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not easy to absorb some of these things. But thankfully, the economics of the DJ are good enough that we can still, uh, you know, make good wells. But uh, operationally, a lot to manage there. Um, I think the more important thing is is just the macro. It's it's we need more oil, you know, uh, and and I think where inflation and you've rightly pointed it out is hurting the most is it's hurting consumers, um, you know, and I and, and the part of the most frustrating part is just how that's kind of been messaged to the American people about uh, what our industry is experiencing in terms of using words like profiteering and things like that. It's 
you know, we went through a period of time for five years before the pandemic where we were as an industry kind of, you know, told by investors, we want you to focus on being profitable. We don't want to focus on just growth and driving up large amounts of debt. You know, so uh, what we've done is we've gotten better at what we do. You know, costs have come down. We've gotten smarter about returning uh, more more of the return to shareholders. Uh, and, and so that business model works. And it's probably something that's going to be felt in other sectors of the economy at some point that are growing uh, expansively. But the, the reality is, you know, coming back now and, and prices come up, it isn't flipping the switch. It doesn't happen that quickly. You know, and so when, when we hear things about like, why is the oil and gas industry not drilling more wells? Well, you got to have permits to drill, right? So right. we just talked about how we can't see additional activity coming to the DJ until the permit count comes up. So it's not as simple as uh, flipping a switch and it won't be. And so unfortunately, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, consumers are going to get hit really hard and it's going to continue down that road until things change. And that's why I say I think policies are slow to change. I think they're reactionary. I think consumers and investors are going to make the difference here. I think we're already starting to see it with investors. Uh, there was an article that came out in Oil Gas 360 just last week. I wanted to just reference real quickly, if I may. It's uh, basically the title of the uh, of the article was Pri- "Private Investors Are Flocking Into Oil and Gas." According to Prequin data, so far this year, private capital funds worldwide have raised 28 billion dollars, uh, compared to 19 in 2021. So you're starting to see where public companies, and you've rightly pointed this out with some of the ESG pressure, you're starting to see the public companies, you know, they're saying, hey, we're trying to absorb this. We're trying to have this net zero approach. We're, we're not going to just grow and, 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 and for the sake of, uh, you know, gross sake, uh, like we did in higher price environments previously. But, uh, you know, private companies are flocking and private money is flocking into the space right now. And, and people are seeing it and they're saying, hey, I need this in my portfolio because of all the reasons that are happening in the world, because of energy security, because of inflation. Um, energy is likely to have a good run here, and it, it it needs to have a good run because the world needs it. Right. And those are, I mean, those are excellent points. And I think it's um, that the that public-private split is something I, I don't know if a lot of listeners, you know, and I, I'm you know, I spend a lot of time with clients and stuff really, really getting into the public-private differentiation because um, when you look at you know, the, the, who are the public companies drilling and, and completing wells and the actual wells being brought online and where they're at. And you look at the privates and where they're at. Um, the reason sort of the Rockies are, and I say this and, and don't mean this in a hugely negative way, but they're sort of disadvantaged because you had less private companies. And so the private companies in the Permian have been off to the races. You know, we had some that were drilling through that never skipped a beat during the pandemic that never skipped a beat in 2020 and just drilled through it, which, and I've said this a number of times, but the smartest thing any company could have done is to be drilling at rock bottom day rates throughout that. Now, not necessarily bringing the wells online, but I would have fracked them and I would have not brought them online and just brought them online because we knew this was coming back, but the market did, you know, was confused and and lost its mind and everybody lost, you know, oil prices went negative and people went crazy. Um, that being said, we're here today, as most of us knew we would be, not necessarily at these oil prices, um, but that we knew the market would come back and and things take a lot of time to lag. I think you're you're very much correct in terms of the market is shifting. A lot of folks don't want to see it, don't want to believe it. I think the International Energy Agency and the touting of that report, it's not what's actually happening. Um, I, I know that the UN was talking about, I mean, you've had a number of uh, 
folks talking on the climate side lately that we're not going to hit these targets uh, for, you know, net zero emissions. And the reality is we're probably not going to hit them. I don't think we, we were even previously with the set targets or with the set set plans. But as the global economy is sort of, you know, is getting crushed, um, the amount of money that has to be spent on these on these initiatives simply isn't happening. But outside of that, I mean, the momentum is shifting in terms of the need for energy security. So you are seeing, you know, the the desperation by and natural gas is a big savior in terms of lowering emissions. But you're just seeing a huge move in obviously in Europe, they're finally going back to burning natural gas in, in power plants, uh, when they were burning diesel as for the past year, because prices have dropped and they can actually afford to do that. But I think you're actually seeing from an investor standpoint is that, um, you know, in this business, in all businesses, you have to make money. And I think the ESG side, we have has not proven that it can make money. Um, and so I think there is a quiet shift uh, by many folks on the money side that uh, is no, no saying, you know, the alarm bells are ringing, the ESG is not going to make any money. And, and the only reason it was in the beginning was because there was a lot of hype on hoopla around it that, you know, and there's tons of subsidies. I mean, the stuff that you hear from, that you hear globally around the Inflation Reduction Act that I put in air quotes, which has, is not reducing inflation if it's increasing spending, um, but it has massively subsidized a lot of green tech. And it has, you have companies in South Korea that are angry about this. You have um, companies all over the world that are angry that their green stuff can't compete now um, or is it going to make money because we're we're heavily subsidizing. And you actually have folks in, in Europe that are upset about this as well because now they have to compete. Um, they have to pay more for these products, whereas we're paying, you know, we're, we're subsidizing, we're bringing it in and it's going to drive the cost of these products up. That's the opposite of inflation, you know, uh, you know, reduction, just so folks understand when you're when you're driving these pro- pr- prices up. Yeah, no, but the that, point is, yeah, sorry, that's, go ahead. I mean, you're, that's absolutely a critical point that you're hitting there, because um, ESG, I mean, we, every, it means something different to everybody. Right. But it's differentiating what works from what doesn't work. You know, solar and wind are never going to baseload the power grid. You know, I was at the Energy and Environment Leadership Symposium and Mark Gabriel of United Power, third largest power uh, cooperative. uh, Well, the large cooperative here in Colorado, third largest power provider. uh, Basically, he he came out and said, listen, I need a full stack. You know, if I'm going to optimize my grid and optimize the price for consumers, I got to have all these energies. I can't baseload my grid with solar panels and wind wind farms. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's differentiating between the things that work and the things that don't work. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that Mark said was he said that uh, electricity, uh, the flow of electrons is dictated by physics. The flow of electricity is dictated by politics. And yes, so, and that, yeah. And we see that and we see that in Colorado and we see that with Excel and our electricity bills and trying to push out, you know, trying to push out coal. And I know that folks are, you know, anti-coal, but I think people have to really appreciate. And, and I really think the, ga- the oil and gas industry and particularly in Colorado, and I've called out the industry on this for a long time, is that the industry in Colorado was quick to, you know, shove the knife in coal's back and twist it really hard and then not expect that they were going to come after gas as well. And I think it's, it's case in point today when you see um, there's a movement, you know, called, uh, you know, Beyond Coal. But if you actually look it up, it's called Beyond Coal and Gas and talking about all these, you know, how many coal fired power plants the U.S. has, which is the amount of coal fired power plants that we have uh, in in operation in in the U.S. now is um, is is less than half of or sorry. Yeah, it is. If is. We have about 191, I think, in construction right now as we're speaking, um, about just shy of 200 
of in construction in China right now. Um, and the amount that's set to increase is is on on a yearly basis. Um, if we just call it 200 a year, is a huge huge amount. And they have you know thousands over sorry 3,000 operating coal fired power plants in China right now, and 5,000 terawatt hours basically of uh, uh, for coal fired power generation. They added a thousand terawatt hours last year. We don't even have that's that's more than all of the U.S. has for terawatt hours. So this this anti movement and it's interesting because I if you I saw this on a Bloomberg commercial. So then if you look at this and then you look you realize that Bloomberg Philanthropies again and Bloomberg is the news agency. Um, so Bloomberg Philanthropies has invested in this anti coal movement and anti gas movement. So you can see there's biases in this and it does trickle into the news and how they report this yeah. stuff, which I think is is ridiculous. And even when this International Energy Agency report came out and they were talking about it today on on CNBC, and I said this, you know, last uh, last week when when Biden was speaking on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that there there just wasn't criticism of, I don't care who's in office, but there should be criticism of if this is bad policy, I want people, you know, criticize saying, you know, what they should be saying. And they, people were very fearful of sort of criticizing this policy, not talking about how the U.S. is the number one oil and gas producer in the entire world by a long shot. Um, and the fact that no one can say, you know, is criticizing this IEA report and saying, and it is influential and that's why it needs to be criticized is because it's, it's sort of, it's not factual. Um, but anyways, the, the point of all that is, is that in Colorado, we have uh, a lot of coal-fired power generation that's being shut down. And I think it's it's really critical to realize that gas, um, you know, ha- has to play a significant role if you're going to shut this coal down. And I don't think you necessarily should be shutting this coal down because for grid reliability. Um, I'm all for cleaning it up and doing things that can people do, but grid reliability is huge. Um, and, you know, and, and cost of electricity is really huge. And we've seen cost of electricity, if you've seen in the inflation data in the U.S., it just skyrocketed. Um, and that's just on average, but we've definitely seen it in Colorado. And and um, I was just hearing, you know, a call on folks investing in Tesla and Generac, and that's because their their stocks are down so much. But the guy was literally saying, and this is so sad to hear, but it was they're talking about the stock of Generac, which we saw that all go up, and you know that that's the. Uh, you know, additional power on your house. And we obviously saw that surge in, in Texas after their, you know, after their grid issues with the two years ago in, in the spring to, or in February with that big cold snap. Um, but since the stock has, has just come off a cliff and the guy was mentioning that, hey, you know, the reason we're bullish on the stock is because, um, you know, in the 1970s, less than half of homes had um air conditioning. And now 96% of homes have air conditioning. And they do not, you know, if you're thinking about grid power, and this is such a depressing thought to think about the big, you know, the most developed country in the entire world being the United States, that homes will require or, you know, right now it's a luxury, but most homes will have, you know, additional power backup because our grids are so unstable. And that grid instability, the first thing I'm thinking is because you're pushing out stuff before you have a solution. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't think, you know, I'm with Chris Wright and several others that we are actually not going through an energy transition, not right now, probably won't be for a long time. And that the reality is sort of um, whether people want to admit it or not, the reality is, is that, you know, we, we have to have energy security for geopolitically from a number of different reasons. And Colorado's really sort of yeah. at the crux of this for me, of that, you know, losing 200,000 barrels a day of production. We don't want to be California where we just lose production every month month and we never come back, you know, and we're just on this steady decline. Um, it's not a place you want to be in. It drives up our costs locally for our re- refinery. I mean, if our refinery was to go out, we'd be paying more, but it's just a huge, and we're not adding, you know, we're losing, if we lost, lose Colorado production, we're losing, you know, U.S. oil production. And that, um, I mean, that actually makes an impact, even if it's, people think it's kind of small. So sorry for that rant. Go ahead. 
No, uh, a lot of great stuff in there, and I'll agree with you on a, on several points. I think you know the fatal flaw in the approach that's being taken toward you know a transition, if you will, is the fact that it's just got misalignment all over it in terms of what reality is versus expectations. And I don't know if we have to you know hit the fast forward button and go ten years into the future to when that finally sinks in with people about the, the, what is physically possible. Uh, but but in the meantime, over those 10 years or however long that's going to take, there's going to be a lot of capital that's going to be destroyed. Right. And there's going to be a lot of uh, of that hardship that's going to be pushed on to consumers. And and who knows what else other other energy insecurity comes out of that. But but it's the biggest thing is like we can't we can't talk about things that aren't physically possible. Like if you want to have a moon shot, like, you know, Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. It took them a while. They did it. But the difference was. It's physically possible. You can't run your power grid on wind and solar. It's not physically possible. So um, let's not make that the expectation. So there just needs to be, you know, differentiating the parts and pieces that make sense, right? So when you look at Colorado oil and gas, and you see the fact that we've been able to adapt to some very, very protective measures, and we're still able to be profitable and deliver the energy that's needed, we should be looking at things like that on a national scale, on a global scale, and saying, hey, Rather than say we don't need any of that anymore, let's clean it up. Let's find the best way to do it. Like you said, with coal, with oil and gas, because they have to be part of the mix. They have to be a huge part of the solution. And the things that are, you know, able to contribute in whatever other form, they're going to have to integrate. And and they're the ones that are going to have to transition into a system and how it works. Um, And we should be doing all of those things. But we can't say this can replace that because physics would say otherwise. Well, I love that you brought this back, and this is a great way to sort of conclude this in a way, but you bringing this back to Colorado. So I do have a, this, you know, and I harp on this a lot, but if you're looking at the production profile of Colorado, which you see a lot, you know, the production profile of the DJ Basin, and you see this, you know, nearly 200,000 barrel day decline, and we're sort of in line with California production, um, you know, three, three north of, I bet we're about 400,000 barrels a day. Um, and I, correct me, I'm going to have to go back and look at those data points. Um to make sure I have those numbers perfectly. But can we come back to, I mean, we were literally in Colorado. We were almost 600,000 barrels per day. Largely that was coming out of Weld County. This was 2019 from the DJ, from operators like yourselves, from everyone, you know, running and gunning and, and producing this. And these are from wells. Like we, these are repeatable, you know, two, 200 to 500 barrel a day IP wells, you know, with a slightly, but you know, not a monster decline. I mean, just, and, and we had been downspacing in the DJ before everybody else was really downspacing. These are pretty tight, tightly put together wells, wine racking with an Ibrer and Codel reservoirs. I mean, some impressive spud to TD and, you know, sub three days. I mean, impressive stuff was going on in Colorado. Can we, and I know that we, we have, you guys are still doing impressive stuff, um, but obviously with far less rigs and, and just not the revving of activity. Can we theoretically get back there? Could we, can, you know, if we had the permit, permits aside, knowing that we need those permits, do you think if those permits were there and we we're driving this, do you think, and even, you know, you and you, you know, I'm pretty vocal with you about and, and the industry of don't expect $90 oil forever, but let's say it's, you know, $75 oil. Do you think we could get back to these, um, that level of, t- from a technical standpoint, from your perspective, can we bring back production in Colorado and what, what is it going to take to do that? Yeah, no, we absolutely can. Uh, it takes permits and it takes people and it takes dollars. And we have all three. And so, you know, again, the permits part of it has been the lagging piece, but it's starting to tick up and hopefully that trajectory will continue like we talked about. And if it does, if that trajectory comes back and we're able to stock, you know, 
two, three, four permit years worth of inventory, uh, we absolutely can come back and, and do that. And again, like I say, it, it's, all, it's not just about what the DJ will contribute. It's about taking the model here. And, and, and that's probably going to get deployed at some capacity to other parts of uh, other states and other other basins. And so, you know, we've kind of lived it, uh, the, the good, bad and the ugly here. Uh, we'll see how how uh, some of these other basins behave uh, once they start to live in a, a little bit of a different world where they can't flare gas all day long. Right. So right. Um, but but some of those things, well, let's learn from those things. Let's jump the curve, you know, and then hopefully investors will get excited about that. They should get excited about it. Because again, knowing that it has to be part of the mix and being a part of something that is, you know, doing it as clean as it can be done is where the future is going to be. And so uh, differentiating those things is important. And I think uh, it's something that uh, people should get excited about. Excellent. Well, um, with that, I think that's a great way to conclude. Um, I think, you know, if, if folks are wondering, you know, why this is a pertinent sort of midterm conversation, I mean, the reason is because, I mean, obviously Colorado is a, is a, is, you know, it, everyone calls it a red, you know, blue state. It's a little purpley some, in some areas, obviously, well, well, County, um, is red. The areas that produce oil and gas tend to be obviously a little more red, but, um, in terms of just thinking about, I, I think about midterms more broadly in terms of just the state of politics and in the podcast with, uh, with Diana Fershkart Roth, we were talking a lot about, you know, the implications for a shift in midterms and sort of a, maybe of a tempering of sort of this uh, very, very hard, you know, green, aggressive policies um, being pushed by the White House. I mean, and they may continue to do that with executive orders um, and stuff on climate change. But if there was sort of a shift in midterms, the implications for a more um, pragmatic approach in energy, I think could be uh, very beneficial in terms of not just, it's not necessarily, obviously, you're not going to impact you know, impact oil prices immediately with it. But in terms of having a more pragmatic approach in energy policy, meaning you're giving sort of a green light to say, you know, we need to produce more energy in the U.S. Uh, for energy security. And so we can, you know, keep these costs in line for not just the U.S. consumer, but obviously we're exporting a massive amount of oil and natural gas abroad. And that is, you know, hugely significant in terms of keeping a lid on these oil, on, on oil and natural gas prices. So um, just think that's really important for listeners consider. But um, Andrew, I... I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. And it's great to hear from a, a private operator in the DJ. And, you know, even with the adversity and stuff, uh, you guys are, you know, pushing through it. And I think that's, uh, it's a, is a great story to hear. And it's also, you know, a positive reason of why, you know, there are bright spots in, um, in the DJ and in places that I think some folks might not have expected. Yeah, it's, it's, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to kind of uh, coming back soon at some point and, and, and sharing sure. how the progress has been. I, I do think there are bright spots out there. I'm an optimist uh, and a Petra nerd. So uh, uh, we'll hopefully have more bright spots in the future. And I know all the challenges in between, you'll help us navigate those. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye, guys.